If Jesus was charged with breaking and entering your life and ransacking your carefully constructed existence, would he be convicted? Would there be enough evidence to put Jesus away? Has Jesus left his fingerprints on you? If they took a random sample of your life, would he have left maybe evidence that he was there? If Jesus was in a police lineup, would you be able to identify him? If he was, if, if you were standing behind a one-way mirror, could you pick out Jesus as the one who died for you? Could you, beyond all reasonable doubt, say that it was him? Could you positively identify Jesus? Let's turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. So Mark, as he's starting off his book, he, he doesn't mince his words. He starts off his gospel with the beginning of the good news or the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. There's no run-in, there's no smooth introduction. But what Mark lacks in smoothness, he makes up for inefficiency. There's so much packed into this phrase. Because when Mark says the beginning, the beginning of the good news... What he's referring to is the whole book of Mark. All of this, the miracles and the trials and the sermons and the teachings and the healings and the suffering of Christ. This is all the beginning of the good news. And when Mark says that this news is good, Mark knows exactly who he's speaking to, who he's writing to. He's writing to Christians who are suffering under Emperor Nero. He, he knows that the people who are, who are reading his account are those who are going, going through severe persecution and who will need a foundation of hope to withstand even the strongest attack. They need a message that is sufficient uh, that will keep them strong in the face of torture and persecution, of tragedy and of death, and of fear and uncertainty. And so what this means for us, and what this means for the Christians of Rome, is that the last page of the good news is yet, yet to be written, yet to be done. So wherever you live your life, wherever you work, whatever you do in your day, if you love Jesus... You are a continuation of the gospel of Mark, the beginning of the good news. And what is the message of the good news about? Well, we read in verse 1, it's about Jesus, the Messiah, who is, he's the chosen one. He's God with skin on. And then Mark tells us in verse 2, one of the proofs that Jesus is the Messiah is that he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. He takes us back through the mists of time, right back to the words of the prophets, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, verse 2, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. So what's happened here is that we've moved from clear naming of Jesus Christ in verse 1 to a mysterious voice in the wilderness in verse 2. You can look at the tumbleweeds. You can see the rocks and the barrenness around and ever so faintly over the sound of the wind and the skittering of rocks, you hear a lone voice saying, prepare the way of the Lord. And it gradually gets louder as this phrase is, is repeated. And then you hear this, make straight paths for him. 
And so you, you listen and you work out where the sound of the voice is actually coming from. And you start to see someone. Now he looks really shimmery because of the heat, but he gets clearer as he comes closer. And gradually this individual comes into full focus. What was a shimmering prophecy from hundreds of years earlier is resolving into the figure of a man and and you see that this figure has crowds around him hanging on to his every word verse 4 and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins so this mysterious man stepping out of prophecy now has a name he has a title and he has a calling he has a vocation his name is john his title is the baptist or the baptizer and and his vocation his calling is to preach a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins now with john if you were baptized by him this wasn't a mindless ritual instead it was an outward cleansing that mirrored an internal cleansing due to your sins having been forgiven you this is what repentance means you see what what happens when we try to get all the benefits of jesus without having walked through the door of repentance what we have in essence is nothing more than a a styrofoam packing peanut that's painted gold it looks good on the outside but there's no substance to it and so John is saying that, that you have to get ready for the one coming. You have to repent. You have to change. You have to get washed clean inside and outside. Your outward religious activity needs internal substance. You don't want to be a gold-painted packing peanut. Now, let's say that you receive a call early in the morning, and this call says that Tom Cruise or Dwayne Johnson or Jennifer Lawrence, or Emma Stone, or whoever your celebrity crush is, is coming in half an hour to your house. Half an hour. You would not roll over and say, well, I've got another 29 minutes until I have to get up. You'd immediately leap out of bed, you'd use the loo, you'd have a shower, you'd have some coffee, you'd clean your teeth, you'd find your best clothes, and you'd put a mint in your mouth before answering the door. This is the expected response for some, when you know that someone famous is coming to your house. Now, verse 5 tells us um, how the people in John's time responded when they heard the news that the Lord was on his way. Verse 5 says this, The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins, their making themselves ready for the coming of the Messiah meant that they confessed their sins and they were baptised. Now, what I read from this is that John was the original eco-friendly granola type of individual. Nowadays, we might expect him to have a reusable metal straw to wear a pair of Toms, to drink fair trade coffee, and to live the keto lifestyle. But back then, he rocked the camel hair jumpsuit, he wore a leather leather belt, and he had a fanny pack with snack clusters of locusts dipped in honey. So John would have stood out. 
he would have been quite a scary sight to actually look at one of those people that you'd actually cross the street when you saw him coming so that you could avoid him. And I, in my, in my imagination, I imagine that John smelled a bit as well. And yet John drew people to himself. His bird's nest hair and his sunburnt face combined with his message reminded people of the prophets of old, specifically prophets like Elijah. It had been 400 years since anyone had heard anything from God. And now here's the village crazy out in the desert saying that the Lord is on his way, so you had better look sharpish. But his message convinced those who were listening. They were impressed. But then John said... You think I'm impressive? This is nothing. Verse 7. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize with water, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So he's saying... Whoever's coming is way more impressive. He's saying that John wasn't the spectacle. People thought that John was a spectacle, but John wasn't the spectacle. He was just the announcer. He was the pre-show. John wasn't the main event. He was just the MC. John was a voice calling out in the wilderness. And so John, he's identified that the one who's coming is none other than Messiah. Now we move from the wilderness over to the water's edge where God himself will identify the person of the Messiah. Verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth, Nazareth in Galilee, and he was, he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now, in my imagination again, I imagine that John was in the river with crowds of people lining up, ready to be baptized, and then he sees Jesus, who he knows is the Messiah. In fact, what we read in scripture is that John has miraculously known that Jesus is the Messiah ever since John and Jesus were in their respective mother's wombs. And, and what John knows is that when placed next to Jesus Christ, he's not worthy. In fact, he's so unworthy that he can't even do the lowly servant-slave task of removing Jesus' shoes. And then, and then we read in Matthew that Jesus asks John if John would mind maybe baptizing Jesus. And that freaks him out. And so we read in Matthew 3.13 that John actually turns Jesus away and says... I have to be baptized by you and you, you come to me. But then what Jesus explains is that he has to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Now, maybe when you hear that and you hear Jesus saying, I need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness, you're wondering, what does that even mean? Because Jesus, you're perfect. Why do you have to be baptized? If anything, you should be baptizing me. But when Jesus said that he was being baptized to fulfill all righteousness, what John MacArthur tells us is that Jesus says that he was identifying with us as humans, as those who sin, who are sinners. And it also served as a teaser trailer of the death and resurrection that would later come, which, which Christ 
would uh, take upon his shoulders so that we don't have to. So right at the start of Jesus' public ministry, right at the first moment, he's laying the groundwork for, for his main mission. And so, so Jesus goes under the water. And then he rises up, and suddenly, as he rises up out of the water, the heavens are torn open. What does this mean? Well, I think it means something like this, that, yeah, the fabric between this world and God's manifest presence in his glory is ripped, just like you would tear apart a package to see whatever is inside. Now, we've all seen our lovely little pictures in the children's Bibles of this moment and Jesus is there with a smiley look on his face. He's looking very peaceful and there's a sunbeam of God's presence, you know, resting on his face and and there's a dove hovering about three feet above his head. But the reality of this moment is probably more more violent. Um, One commentator points out that what is opened may be closed, but what is ripped cannot easily return to its former state. What what is opened can be closed, but what is ripped, what is torn, cannot be easily returned to its former state. And anyone who's who's had the wonderful experience of being somewhere in public where an item of your clothing has ripped in the most inconvenient and embarrassing way possible, you will understand that what is ripped cannot easily return to its former state. So here at the River Jordan, the heavens themselves are not just opened, they are torn open, they are ripped open. Something has fundamentally shifted. God has torn yeah, the fabric of the heavens so that he, he, he can pronounce some sort of a blessing on his son. And it's at this moment that we see the fulfillment of Isaiah's prayer in Isaiah 64 verse 1, where he said this, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains would tremble before you. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and that you would come down. And so in this moment that that Christ rises up from his symbolic watery grave, we see God's stamp of approval on his ministry. So we've heard Yeah, the voice of one calling from the wilderness. Now at the water's edge, we hear the voice of one whose voice is the only one that truly matters. God, the Father, in verse 11, says this. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So, we've seen Jesus being identified by prophecy in the wilderness. We've seen Jesus being identified by John the Baptist in the wilderness, and now we see Jesus being identified by God at the water's edge. Now, I can't imagine how special this moment must have been for Christ to, to, to hear the voice and the accent and the tones of his father telling him that he's proud of him, and then the Spirit falls on him, and at that moment, he's, he's, Jesus is set apart and he's empowered for God's purposes. All three members of the Holy Trinity are here. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The start gun has been fired. Jesus' feet have left the blocks. His public ministry has now started. There's no turning back. And so, with the voice of God still resounding um, wherever they are, where they are, verse 12 tells us this. 
At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. So we started in the wilderness with John's identification of Jesus. We then transitioned to the water's edge for God's identification of Jesus. And now we, and now we return back to the wilderness for Satan's identification of, of Jesus Christ as Messiah. Okay, just think about it. You've seen the Holy Spirit fall on him, saying to Christ that, that you're ready now for ministry. Okay, that has just happened and then the very next thing that the Holy Spirit, who's just fallen on him and empowered him, says to him is, go into the desert alone. Except we find out that Jesus is not alone. We see that he's with Satan, he's with the wild animals, and he's with the angels. But he's far away from human crowds. Humanly, Jesus Christ is on his lonesome. Now, at this moment, I want to point something out. Here we have Christ who's crossed the Jordan's river symbolically through being baptized, after which he's sent off into the wilderness for 40 days, after which he will return later to create his team of 12. Now what does this remind us of? A water crossing plus a time of 40 in the wilderness and then creating a group of 12. Well, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that this sounds very reminiscent of the Exodus when the Israelites leave Egypt and then they cross water that saves them and then they wander in the desert for 40 years and then they settle down as 12 tribes. So if there is a link there, what does this imagery mean? Well, I think it means that Jesus is bringing in a new Exodus not one in which he merely leads people on the road to freedom, but one in which he is the road of freedom himself. As, as Christ says in John 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And what that verse is saying is that Jesus is the new, new exodus. He, he, he is the way. And this way is open to everyone. It is totally inclusive. But this way is also exclusive. That is to say there is only one way which is Jesus. But this exclusive way is inclusively open to everyone. And so Christ is led off into the desert, and there he faces off against his greatest adversary. Now, Matthew's account goes into much more detail than, than Mark's, but what Mark tells us is that Jesus was there for 40 days, that he was tempted. In fact, the language is almost that Jesus was led into the wilderness in order to be tempted. But why, after the Spirit has set him aside for ministry and empowered him for service, would he lead Jesus into the desert so that he could be ambushed by Satan? Now, John Corson suggests perhaps it's because God wanted to show Jesus off. Okay, think about it. Through words of prophecy, through John's words, through baptism, through the verbal blessing of God and the, and the descending of the Spirit, God has identified Jesus as Messiah. But Satan's not going to be impressed with all of this. Satan knows all about God's plan. He isn't impressed with the heavens tearing open. After all, he led worship in heaven itself. 
And so God tries to communicate in a language that Satan would understand. He allows Satan to throw everything in his arsenal against Jesus Christ, Messiah. So now we understand why it was so necessary that Jesus was anointed, that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit, and then he went into the desert ready to be tempted. There may have been no other humans there, but I'm pretty sure that the spirit world was there in droves. You would have you would have had all the evil spirits and the evil angels there ready to watch their master personally attack Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And then we also know from scripture that the angels were there to look after him and to really tend him. Now, when I read this, what I have in my mind is the image of a boxing ring. There's Christ and there's Satan and and they're going at it for a round. And then Jesus goes back to his corner. He sits on his stool. He he takes out his mouth guard. He spits blood on the ground uh, and the angels uh, massage his shoulders. They wipe his face and they speak words. You can do this. And then he gets up ready for round two and on and on it goes. Now, when we read this, sometimes we struggle to really understand that Jesus was actually tempted, that somehow Jesus could not be really God if he was actually tempted. But what we read in the biblical account is that he was really tempted and that that through the power of scripture, he was able to rebuff Satan's temptation, Satan's attack with a counterattack, with a counterpunch. And what we read in the Matthew account of this is that this really was a struggle. It was tough. But what I want you to hear is that it's because of Matthew chapter 1 verse 13, or sorry, Mark chapter 1 verse 13, it's because of Mark 1 13 that we have the glorious encouragement of Hebrews 4 verse 5. And Hebrews 4 verse 15, sorry, says this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And so I say to you again that without Mark chapter 1 verse 13, we would not have Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15. Now, of course, we know how, how the story ends. Jesus, he's, he's, he's really beat up, he's, he's battered, he's bruised, he's exhausted, he's hungry, but he is victorious. And so the angels look after him, they tend him, and they get him upon his feet again. Which, which is amazing, that the one who created the universe is needing the ministrations of angels and You know, I could imagine as they're looking after him, as they're wiping his brow, as they're helping him, whatever that looked like, that this one who had left heaven, this one whose eternal presence they so missed was now there. They were looking after him. And I can imagine that it must have been a really meaningful, poignant moment for these angels. And so we've seen that Jesus has been been identified by, by, by prophecy as Messiah. He's been identified by God as Messiah. He's now been identified by Satan as Messiah. Verse 14, let's move on. Verse 14 of Mark chapter 1. Um, it says, after John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of 
of God. The, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Now, once again, Mark, who just crams so much information into one sentence, uh, what we learn in this, in this one verse is that Jesus' forerunner is now in prison. Jesus' MC is now behind bars. And as we find out later, John actually lived the rest of his life in prison and he was executed at the whim of a young girl, as we'll read later in chapter 6. And so with John laid aside and in prison, Jesus takes up his mantle and starts proclaiming the good news of God. Now, remember that verse 1 said the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah. Now we have Jesus, the Messiah, telling the good news of Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus is identifying himself as the good news of God. And so the good news is no longer on its way, as we read in verse 2, where it says, prepare the way of the Lord. Instead, it's arrived. The Lord has now arrived, which, which means that the message has changed from let's get ready for the king to arrive to the kingdom of God has now come near, that the time has come. Zero hour has arrived, and it's arrived in the person of Jesus Christ, the servant king. Because what we understand is that Jesus Christ, God himself, came to earth on a mission, which is to break the power of sin and death and to bring in a new kingdom of hope and peace. And what is the way to truly become a citizen of this new kingdom? Well, we find out in this passage, repent and believe the good news. That's how you enter into the kingdom. So Jesus is the good news. He's identified by prophecy in the wilderness. He's identified by God at the water's edge. He's identified by Satan in the wilderness. He's now identified by himself. And uh, after taking up John's mantle, he then returns back to the water's edge. Not the Jordan River this time, but the Sea of Galilee. Verse 16, as Jesus Walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish the people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in the boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. Now, these few verses are enough for a message in and of themselves, but it's enough for us to realise that we've already heard that yeah, the prophets identify him as Messiah, that God identifies him as Messiah, that Satan identifies him as Messiah, that, that Jesus himself identifies himself as the Messiah, and now it's our turn, the turn of the people, the turn of the disciples. So at the water's edge, Jesus calls Simon, Peter, and Andrew, and later he calls James and John, two sets of brothers to come and to follow him. Now, remember that Mark's account is based on the words of Simon Peter. I explained this last week. And so I can imagine that Peter, or Simon as he's called in verse 16, um, that, you know, that, that as he's saying this to, to Mark, and as John Mark is writing this down, that uh, Simon remembers this moment when this mysterious stranger with a commanding presence and a voice of authority called him, yet to follow him. Now, we don't get any insight into what's going on in these men's heads at this moment. Maybe they wrestled or they questioned or, or, or 
whatever. And in some ways it really doesn't matter because what matters is that they left what they were doing and they followed him. And we aren't told that these four men were special in any way or form. These weren't, these weren't the elite. These weren't, you know, those living in the ivory towers or the moguls or the millionaires. These were the blue-collar fishermen. But they were called. And isn't that like us? First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 says this. First Corinthians 1, 26 says this. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose, chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that, that are so that no one may boast before him. And then this is the verse. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Verse 31, therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, may they boast in the Lord. It is because of God that you are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Mark has clearly shown us that Jesus is Messiah. He fulfilled prophecy. God tore open heaven itself to show that Jesus is his son. Satan, he, he, he went after him in the desert and had to, to retreat in the face of Messiah. And we see that Christ has proclaimed himself as Messiah. But what to me is the most compelling argument for the lordship of Jesus Christ is that he walked up to four honest workmen who were already comfortably settled into the groove that would have taken them through the rest of their life on into retirement, and he called them and they obeyed. He saw what their talents were, what their skills were. He saw that what they were good at is catching fish. And rather than saying, okay, leave all that and do something new, instead he says, why don't you maybe continue what you were doing, just change the focus a little bit. From fishing for fish for your own gain to fishing for men, for people, for my name. And so Jesus, the servant king, has started to establish his kingdom here on earth. And his first recruits, his first citizens in this kingdom were four people like you and I. They didn't know much about him yet, but still he called them and still they went after him. They probably stank like fish and they didn't know much outside of their trade and yet still God called them and still they went after him. They probably didn't know words like church or trinity that hadn't been invented yet. There was so much that they did not know. Maybe if they'd have known how much ridicule and persecution and hatred and homelessness that, that they would have to endure for Jesus' name. Maybe if they'd have known how many times they would let him down during the span of their lives. Maybe if they'd have known all this, they'd have said to him, Thanks, Rabbi, but we're okay. I'll stay with my nets. But if they had, if they'd have stayed with their nets, then they would have missed the miracles and the private mentoring and teaching moments, the experiences of being, being brothers in arms, the miracles and the healings and the coming of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that equipped Jesus for ministry, would equip them for ministry. They would have missed the roaring of the wind and the tongues of fire resting on their head. They would have missed the speaking in tongues and the salvation of 3,000 people in 
One day they would have missed the birth of the church. And so with all of this in mind, I say to you that you might not have a high view of yourself, your job or your livelihood. You might not have much money to rub together. You might be ashamed of your education or your upbringing. You might not know much about God. Maybe you had to look at the contents page to find out where Mark was in the Bible. Maybe you don't feel like you bring much to the table. But Jesus was identified as the Messiah, as the chosen one, through prophecy, through God, through Satan, through himself. And so Jesus invites you, specifically you, especially you, as if you were the only person sat here in this room to really identify him and to come and to follow him. And he will send you out with your specific skill set, your history and your background, your education level, to go and fish for people or to carpenter for people or to office for people or whatever it is. He calls you to follow him in obedience, whatever that looks like. And most likely he will call you to maybe continue what you were doing, but start doing it in his name. But whether he does that or not, it's at that moment of saying yes that the journey starts, that anything is truly possible. It's at that moment that you become a citizen of the kingdom of the servant king. It's at that moment that you become a fisherman or a shelf stacker or a farmer or a stay-at-home mum or dad or an accountant or an entrepreneur or a carpenter or a waste disposal technician or a teacher or a custodian or a politician or a counsellor or an administrator that identifies Jesus. And so Jesus is waiting even now to really baptize you with the Holy Spirit to ready you for service and to give you all of the power which you need so that you can live a life of service for him. And it is then that you're ready to become like John the Baptist, a voice in the wilderness calling to others, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. And when that happens, even Satan and his angels will sit up and take notice. So let me ask you again, if Jesus was in a police lineup, would you be able to identify him? If Jesus was charged with breaking and entering your life and ransacking your carefully constructed existence, would he be convicted? Could you positively make an identification of him? And this is how you know, by asking yourself this, are you willing to Maybe do what you were doing, but start doing it in his name. And at the same time, are you ready to leave it all if he calls you as an act of faith? Because what I want you to hear as, uh, as we end is that Jesus has identified you. He has picked you out of a lineup, not to charge you, not to condemn you, but so that he can reach out his hand and say, come and follow me, and I will send you out. I will send you out.